HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop, a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Travel back with me to medieval Europe. The year is 1347. You probably know what's about to happen. Black Death, or the bubonic plague. This pandemic struck Europe at a time when urban life was re-emerging. Long-distance trade was once again on the rise. In fact, the Silk Road and other trading routes helped spread the plague faster and farther. However, 9 out of 10 people still made their living from farmland, and conditions weren't that great. A rising population meant wages stayed low and prices climbed. Then about a third of all people died, and things started to change. Surviving rural workers demanded and received higher wages. The price of food dropped. Sheep farming increased because it required less labor than, say, grain production, and also because demand for meat was on the rise. While not exactly parallel to the age following the Black Death, we're starting to see some similar forces at work in today's pandemic era. Urbanization and labor movements, to name a couple. Later in the show, we'll try to understand how COVID-19 and other novel diseases are changing the modern global meat trade. So far in our series on global trade, we focus on ingredients that are either sweet or spicy and that shaped international trade routes. This series started with episode 100, and we recommend starting there if you're just tuning in. As our stories have made clear, there are ups and downs when talking about the globalization of foodways. So this week we go from sugar and spice to bites. We're going to talk about the role that animals have played in the history of the food trade. And we have two stories about bite-sized foods with global footprints. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. We start by traveling back in time to the era of the original Silk Road. While these commercial endeavors were powered by the pursuit of deliciousness and gastronomic pleasure, the realities of trade back then were particularly grueling. Crossing a continent wasn't easy, so traders needed some help. Here's Matan Dubnikov with a story from the rugged lands of Central Asia, where traveling the Silk Road often required four legs, not two. 
You might think to yourself, I'm stranded in the middle of nowhere, entrenched amidst the windswept sand dunes of northwest China's Taklamakan Desert, but you'd be wrong. As the barren expanse stretches to the horizon, you catch a glimpse of a snaking line growing larger and larger. Snorts and jeers and the kicking of dust reveal tens of backstrapped camels, a cavalry of hardy step horses and oxen-drawn carts filled with cloth sacks. You've stumbled into the heart of the Silk Road and on some of the many animals that kept it alive. Thanks to the deep ties between traders, herdsmen, and some gritty mammals, the Silk Road was able to spread across some of the toughest terrain on the planet, dotted with ice-capped mountains, frigid plains, and blistering deserts impossible to trek on foot. It's arduous to walk if they can travel in a cart that's pulled by cattle or horses, great. That's the places where there's dirt roads. Um, When they're in sand, so in the deserts, the camel comes into play. That's Valerie Hansen, professor of world and Chinese history at Yale University. Valerie lived in China for over six years, studying artifacts and scrolls from the ancient cities along historic trade routes. So the key thing about the camel is that it doesn't have to drink water, which allows it to go through desert terrain. You could load them down with, for example, the water that the travelers needed crossing through the desert. Carrying up to 300 pounds in goods, the Silk Road's camels could venture through inhospitable landscapes for 15 days without water and a month without food, making them an asset in the delivery of salt, spices, and other valuable goods in the eastern half of the Silk Road. Even beyond transport, People throughout the region relied on animals in order to survive. Eagles that roamed the windswept Altai Range 6,000 years ago were first captured and trained by nomadic tribes as superior hunting weapons. Their razor-sharp vision, piercing talons, and stealthy acceleration outcompeted any horseback archer. Genghis Khan boasted thousands of falcons, and Marco Polo brought stories of the hunting birds back to Europe. But the generations-old partnership between man and beast has faded with the sands of time. The communist industrialization of the past two centuries saw a drive for modernity in Central Asia, and in turn, the disappearing need for animals in the nomad lifestyle. The poorer the place, the more likely you are to see animals being used the way that they were in traditional times. But often now, if um, if they can afford it, uh, they'll use a motorcycle to herd um, the horses. Local people don't really like the carts anymore because they can use automobiles or trucks, but the tourists like the carts, and so they continue. Under Soviet rule, many satellite states along the Silk Road blacklisted indigenous ways of life, believing they were a threat to the ultra-secular ambitions of communism. Now, as many Central Asian countries shed dictatorial regimes, rewrite authoritarian constitutions, and open long-forbidden entry to visitors, camel rides, horse-driven carts, and falcon hunting no longer serve locals as much as they give tourists a taste of life on the Silk Road. To learn more about the artifacts and sites along historic Asian trade routes, check out Valerie's book, The Silk Road, A New History. When you think of bite-sized foods, what do you think of? Maybe dim sum? Small, plated Chinese treats ranging from shrimp dumplings to yoki steamed buns? You've probably had it before, but do you know where it came from? Or when and why people started eating these bite-sized treats? 
Up next, Alicia Chan dives into the origins of dim sum and gives a couple tips on what you should order next time it's on the menu. Today, Chinese food is an essential part of America's diverse culinary landscape. But the first Chinese restaurant in the States opened just over 150 years ago with a Cantonese eatery in San Francisco. According to Chinese Restaurant News, there are over 40,000 Chinese restaurants in the States today. That's more than twice the number of McDonald's. Back in the early 1920s, popular Chinese foods consisted mostly of Americanized dishes like chop suey. Today, we're seeing a rise of increasingly authentic bites like hot pot and dim sum. Originally, these were breakfast foods. You'd have them with tea for breakfast, and uh, they're mostly high-calorie by Chinese food standards. That's Gene Anderson, professor emeritus of anthropology at the University of California, Riverside, and author of The Food of China. The traditional way to do it was servers would come around with little carts or trays carrying these things, and they would cry out what they were uh, providing. You know, so you get, hog else you my, and... So my young son, when he was three or four years old, referred to dim sum places as screaming places. When the Silk Road first came into full throttle, various ingredients like pepper started making their ways across Eurasia. Sensing a juicy business opportunity, food stands for the weary merchant started popping up along the road. And what did they serve? Actually not dim sum. These early stands were tea shops. The Cantonese world in the old days, you know, normal people did not have offices, uh, so they would hold what were effectively office hours in whatever tea shop was their favorite tea shop, and they were known to be there at a certain time. And people who wanted help or wanted favors or wanted to do business with them or wanted to sign a contract or whatever would find them at that tea shop at that time. So tea shops were office hours before office hours were a thing. But how did we get from tea shops to dim sum restaurants? Turns out, tea is good for digestion, helping the body metabolize rich foods and prevent bloating. When the tea shops realized this, they started serving food to go along with their drinks. The thing is, tea is meant to be drunk in small portions. So with small cups of tea came small plates of snacks. Originally, the uh, common thing was which translates to uh, one cup of tea with uh, two dim sum dish. Linda Wing former Chinese restaurant owner, family friend, and dim sum enthusiast. Most dim sum there have deep deep fry and pan fry. There's oily, a little bit oily. You know, they put the pork, shrimp, uh, fish, kind of lots of uh, fat in there. That's why they drink a tea to, you know, uh, to neutralize all the fat and make it easier on the intestines. So what does dim sum look like today? There are certain dim sum which are very, very standard that everybody has. Siu mai is like pork dumpling. Like haga uh, shrimp dumplings. And the uh, rose pork bun, cha siu bao. And uh, everybody has those. My favorite dish is gan chao niu he. It's like uh, beef chao fan. You know, yeah, it's very tasty. When it comes to dim sum, these are the basics. Shao mai, pork dumplings wrapped in thin skin. Hakao, shrimp dumplings. Cha shao bao, roasted pork buns. In Chinese, dim sum is dian xing. Dian means dot, and xing means heart. Dian xing, dot the heart. These are dishes that dot the heart. Like hot chocolate in a winter storm, it never fails to hit, hit the, the spot. spot. Uh, dotting the eyes of a 
sculpture of a god or deity brings life into it, brings a spirit into it. From its office hour-esque origins, it's clear that dim sum is rooted in the social experience it comes with. Today, dim sum serves as an occasion for family and friends to catch up for hours on end, drinking tea and snacking on various treats until they're full in their stomachs and hearts alike. We'll be right back with more Meat in 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Berry Bisop. Bisop is a refreshing West African spiced hibiscus tea. Berry Bisop honors and preserves the traditional recipe while adding their own twist. Berry Bisop teas are fused with organic fruit. They're all natural, caffeine-free, ethically sourced, and free from artificial coloring or any other chemicals. As for taste, they're chilled and refreshing with a hint of both sweetness and tartness. Drink them alone or mix them with seltzer or cocktails. Learn more at berrybisop.com. That's berry, B-I-S-S-A-P.com. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Next, Emily Kunkel examines what happens when nations begin to bite. Through sanctions, that is. Iranians love pistachio. You know, the word peste, the word pistachio comes from the Persian word peste, actually. The ancient Greeks called the Persians pistachio eaters. <laughs> That's Iranian cook and author Najmia Batmanglij. You might remember her from the first episode of our trade miniseries. For the most part, Iranian eats pistachio as a snacks. You know, uh, I remember we carried pistachio in our pocket when we went to school. So that, that's very important for Iran. And they love to roast pistachio with lime juice and salt. That's the way. They don't like to do any other way. In cooking, pistachio are used uh, as a thickening agent for soup, braises. They use in rice dishes. And, of course, they use pistachio in, in, in ice cream, puddings, and, um, and, and, and of course, they garnish everything with pistachio in Iran. In Iran, the pistachio is more than just a nut. It's a symbol, a memory, and sometimes even a source of income. But in recent years, this little green kernel has found itself at the center of a geopolitical standoff. Uh, it's been a long time since Iran's been able to export pistachios to the United States. John Gazvinian is an author, historian, and professor at the University of Pennsylvania. His upcoming book, America and Iran, A History, 1720 to the Present, examines the precarious relationship between the two countries. But they you know, have been able to export pistachios to Europe up until a few years ago. Um, I don't know what the status of that is right now. I imagine it's very, very difficult. From 1979 to as recent as 2020, the U.S. has imposed sanctions of increasing severity on Iran. These sanctions include anything from U.S. trade embargoes to the more recent cutting off of foreign businesses involved with Iran. The sanctions are so severe that Iran's foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, accused the U.S. of economic terrorism after Trump imposed a maximum pressure policy in late 2020. I mean, Iran has been subjected to the far and away the most severe, stringent, painful sanctions regime uh, that has been inflicted on a country in peacetime ever by a long shot. Um, Iran has been effectively shut off completely from the international uh, financial sort of mechanisms. 
transferring money in and out of Iran is uh, impossible. I mean, virtually impossible. Uh, it requires an in- incredible amount of creativity. Uh, the United States will say uh, that, there, that there are these ex- exemptions and exceptions for humanitarian supplies and medicine and so forth. But in reality, that's simply not the case because there's no way for Iran to be able to pay for these uh, because most financial transactions, banking transactions, uh, have to go through through the United States in effect. Most recently, these sanctions were condemned for their blocking of Iran's ability to purchase important medical supplies and vaccines to combat COVID-19. But what many don't know is that these same policies have been slowly crippling Iranian agriculture for decades. Now, America produced pistachio more than Turkey and, and Iran. In 2009, Iran accounted for over 40% of global pistachio exports. In 2019, this number dropped to a catastrophic 7%. While sanctions affects the farmers, the workers, the distributors, and of course the consumers. Before sanctions, there were a lot of Afghani people were working in Iran in the, in the pistachio fields and pomegranate fields. But after sanctions, they all had to go back to Afghanistan. And unfortunately, the situation in Afghanistan is not very agreeable. So I, not just Iranian people, those people are the refugee and immigrants in, in Iran also they are suffering. Iran's dramatic export drop can be attributed to two causes, sanctions and a devastatingly low harvest due to climate change and mismanaged water. But there seems to be a bit more to the story when you take a closer look at the couple behind the U.S.'s pistachio boom, Stuart and Linda Resnick. Owners of Wonderful Pistachio, Fiji water, and palm pomegranate juice, the Resnicks have gained notoriety as California's biggest water barons. While the couple claims to be Democrats, the three Republican congressmen to whom they have donated, David Bilaudau, Devin Nunes, and Kevin McCarthy, all have something in common. They are each outspoken opponents of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the nuclear deal that would reduce sanctions. Once again, we are faced with a story about American greed agreed that not only stifles economic and agricultural sovereignty, but also cultural practice. With Iran's pistachio harvest diminishing more and more each year, and with access to foreign sources nearly impossible, one begins to wonder if future Iranians will have the same fond memories of the salty sour snack as they walk to school. Only time will tell if the national nut will keep its prominence or be cracked by the U.S.'s greed. For our last story, we're circling back to the impacts that animals have on global trade, especially when they're the commodity. One of the biggest stories about food production and trade today centers around the pandemic that we're living through. Many scientists and food activists are warning that COVID-19 is the canary in the coal mine. The way we grow food and where we grow it is becoming increasingly hospitable to emerging zoonotic diseases. To understand this story better, I turned to Marilyn Noble. I am an independent food and agriculture journalist, and I'm also a contributing writer at The Counter, which is a publication that, an online publication that uh, tells the stories about what's happening in our food system in the United States. Let's start with the specifics of COVID-19 and what we know about how it is or isn't connected to food production. 
Well, you know, it was interesting when the pandemic first started, there was a lot of conversation, especially in social media, about how meat production was a driving force behind the pandemic. And so I set out to talk to several different scientists to find out if that was true or not. Noble spoke to five experts, including a disease ecologist and a food safety specialist. We've included a link to that Q&A in our show notes. The consensus of all of them was that meat production was probably not the driving force behind the pandemic. So while there's a good bit we don't know, what we do know is that the way that animal agriculture is expanding is increasingly risky. Because what's happening, especially in the developing world, is that as development happens and areas that were formerly rural become more urbanized, that pushes the food production out closer into that wildlife interface. And so you've got farm animals now interacting with wild animals, and they never did that before. So it becomes very easy to transmit diseases that way, you know, from the wild animals like bats into pigs, for example, and then into people. This happened in Malaysia in 1998, when their hog herd was wiped out by Nipah virus. And then, you know, in this country and in China, where you've got these massive confined hog farms, it's very easy for diseases to move through those and maybe not even move into people, but destroy a hog farm or several hog farms. This happened in China in 2018 and 19 with African swine fever. And then what happens is, you know, we get antibiotic-resistant bacteria like MRSA, which jumps into people. And that's a really bad thing because there's no way of treating that. People die. This is the one that we should be really worried about. I think it's Lance Price who talks about an antibiotic-resistant era as being like a nuclear winter. The rise of globalization has meant our food systems have become more intertwined than ever before, and that just further increases risk. A Chinese company owns Smithfield, which is one of our big pig producers. And so, you know, these animals, the meat goes back and forth. I mean, in China, they're processing our chickens. We send them to China for processing, and then they send them back. You know, anytime you're exposing food products to that much international travel, I mean, it's so easy for things to become tainted. And I'm sure that the pork producers would tell you you're full of baloney, but, you know, I don't want to eat meat that's been halfway around the world and back. Meat production didn't always work like this, of course. In this country, we've lost all of our small slaughterhouses. There there really aren't very many. Back in the 60s, there were thousands of them. You know, pretty much everywhere that there were ranchers growing livestock, there were small slaughter plants. Those have all gone away. And now we've got this cabal of large companies, multinational, multi-billion dollar companies who are controlling our meat supplies. Large companies mean large, confined hog farms. And as Marilyn mentioned earlier, 
that means disease can travel fast. During the COVID-19 pandemic, consumers have begun to realize the reality of what was going on in massive meat processing plants here in the U.S. And I think people were pretty, pretty taken aback at how the meat gets from being an animal to their plates. So what will we do with this knowledge? What might change in the wake of COVID-19? I don't know what's going to happen politically. I mean, I think that there's hope having a new administration. I don't know what's going to happen with the trade wars and and all of that kind of stuff. But I I do encourage people to learn more about where their food comes from, because that truly is the key. You know, if people demand better, they will get better. You know, I talk to so many ranchers who are raising their animals on pasture, avoiding the CAFO model, because they've realized they can make a better living doing it. They're not at the mercy of the big four meat packers. And it's just a healthier way. It's healthier for the animals. It's healthier for the earth. It's much healthier for people. So I'm hopeful about that, too. I think one thing that this pandemic has done, it sort of ripped that black covering off of what goes on in slaughter plants. So I'm hopeful that as people become more aware, there will be a lot more demand and infrastructure created to support small farmers. And, you know, as I said, regional meat hubs would be a great thing. While we really can't predict if and how food production and trade will change in the coming years, we do know that things are changing. Just as Black Death sped up certain economic and social changes happening in medieval Europe, we're already seeing some instances of COVID-19 intersecting with labor and food issues that are ripe for systemic change. Support is growing for a $15 minimum wage, Biden ordered OSHA to get to work after 10 months of minimal oversight of essential workplaces, and we're just now seeing glimpses of a growing labor union power. The story of global trade will continue to evolve, just as it has since the first days of the Silk Road. And on our next episode in the series, we're going to wrap things up by continuing the conversation about the future of the global food trade. That's our show for this week. Special thanks to Matan Debnikov, Alicia Chan, and Emily Kunkel. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. You can also write to us for this show at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs> 